Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, this morning, I invite you to open up in your Bibles to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3. As you turn there, I just want to pause one more time, ask the Lord to, to help us as we study his word as he speaks to us. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, we come to you this morning, we come in praise, we come in worship, Lord. Our hearts need that. We need to be redirected in our focus, Lord, from the things of this week and even focus on ourselves to you, the God who's worthy of all praise and glory and honor. And now, Lord, we need to come and we need to hear from you. And so we would just pray. The way that we can hear from you is when your spirit would work in our hearts and minds. And so would you take your word, which you've given as a good and gracious God who doesn't hide yourself from your people, but makes yourself known through the word. Lord, would you speak to us? And so we pray for your help in that through Christ our Savior and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, this is an interesting sermon to preach the Sunday after Easter. It, it, it can kind of seem a little bit, I'll just be straightforward, a little disjointed. We've been celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and, and I'll just tell you, we're going to be talking about church leadership and, and how the church functions. That can seem a little kind of disjointed, except for this. Like, Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose from the dead, and in doing so, established his church. He established the church as his people who would live in the world to proclaim the kingdom of God and to proclaim like this is what the resurrection power of Jesus Christ looks like in lives who have been transformed in and through Jesus Christ. And, and it is in and through the church that this manifold wisdom of God, the gospel, is supposed to be made known in the world. And, and I think it's really important that we're in the section of 1 Timothy that we're in because in this section, as we heard read earlier, the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy. It's a pastor writing to a pastor and helping to instruct this pastor on how the church is to function in the world. Now, this was written 2,000 years ago. Why does it matter to us today? Why is it important that we would take time and read and study this section of God's Word? Why would, why would God spend so much time, not just here in 1 Timothy, but in books like 1 Corinthians or in Romans, explaining how the church is to function? And I think one of the primary reasons why it's so important that he did that, not just then but now, is this. I think most people here would say that if it came to buying a used car, I think we would, would realize that, yeah, most of us could buy a used car and, and could probably do a, a decent job at it because if you look to buy a used car, there's some things you're going to look for, right? Like there are some things that you would naturally be looking for in a car to know if it's, 
if it's something that you'd want to purchase. Like, it should have wheels, right? Like, that would be important. But not just any wheels. What do you typically do when you look at a car? You know, oh, does it got new wheels? And what's crazy is that, you know, they can put on new wheels and the engine could be totally shot, right? But so, so it's not just you want to look at the exterior of the car. You want to turn the car around. A car should sound a certain way. If you hear clanging and clunking, you're going to start dealing with the dials. You know, does the air conditioning work? You're going to take it on a little bit of a spin in a test drive. There's things that you'd be looking for to say, like, oh, no, this is a good car. This, is, this car is functioning the way that it should. In a similar way, think about it. As Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, God is very clear that he's designed his church to function in a certain way. The church is God's creation. It's not your creation or my creation, not a man-made thing. It's a God-made thing. And what we see in 1 Timothy is that God designed it to function in a certain way. And so we, as followers of Jesus Christ, like, we'd want to know, is our church, is Valley Center Community Church, living according to God's design? Like, if, if you are looking for a church, you want to say, like, is this church following the model that God has designed it and the way God has designed it to function? And so passages like the one we're looking at today, chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, it's really important because it helps us understand, like, is the church that we're a part of, are, are we living in the way that God would design us to function? Now, if you were with us earlier, you know that in chapter 3, one of the things that Paul spells out is that one of the ways that the church is supposed to function is that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Can I get an amen to that? Jesus Christ is the, the, the head of the church. Numerous passages talk about that. And then underneath Jesus Christ, you have the church, you have the body. And within the church, God has established, as 1 Timothy 3 says, the role of elder, pastor, those who are called to be a part of the flock, but to shepherd the flock underneath Jesus Christ, in submission to Jesus Christ, God has designed that there should be leaders in the church who teach, who preach, who shepherd, and who care for the flock, equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So you have Christ as a head, you have elders and leaders in the church, and then the next thing you want to see is that if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, like to be functioning the way that God has designed you, like every church is to have, have members. It's supposed to have individuals who are a part of the church body serving and engaging with the rest of the body using their gifts. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 talks about that we are giving gifts and that we are hands and feet within the body of Christ. And so for a church to function, it has elders, it has members who are engaged. And then today, we're going to see that it has one other role that God has called to be filled within the church, and that's the role of deacon. The role of deacon. Now, who are deacons? What do they do within the life of the church? Like elders, it's pretty spelled out. We know that they're supposed to, to shepherd and to teach and to equip the saints. But what about deacons? Who are these people? What's interesting when you look at the text this morning, in verses 8 through 13, Paul gives the qualifications for those who would serve in this role, just like he did for elders right before it. But he's He's not giving a lot of instruction as far as like what deacons do in the life of the church. It's kind of like he assumes that everybody already knows what they're supposed to do. And I think that the reason why he assumes they already know what they're supposed to do is first because of the name. The name. I want you to consider the name deacon. Do you know what the name deacon means? It comes from a Greek word, diakonos, that simply means, guess what? Servant. Diakonos is a generic Greek word that's used to refer to somebody who performs an act of service or who's a servant of somebody else. 25 times it's used in this way in the New Testament. Diakonos is used to say, you know, so-and-so is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So-and-so served the church. So-and-so was serving this person. It's used all these times in the New Testament just to refer to somebody who's a servant. 
But then, in unique passages like ours, there's these four other times where deacon specifically refers to this specific role within the life of the church. Now, if the generic title or the generic uses of the word is to refer to somebody who's a servant, we'd be on pretty safe ground to say that the role of somebody who is a diaconos in the church or a deacon in the church is that they're engaged in serving in some way. They're performing a ministry of, of service. So, so I think one of the reasons why Paul doesn't go into deep instruction here about what a deacon does is because the name itself has been very self-explanatory, but I think it's more than that. I believe that the early church had an example for years of what this ministry looked like, starting all the way back in Acts chapter 6. So I want to look with you at the very specific role of the deacon, and, and I think our first example of it comes from Acts chapter 6. I love the book of Acts, because the book of Acts is a record of the events of the early church after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus rose from the dead, you know the last thing that he spoke is he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth. Go, Jesus said. Proclaim my gospel message. And the first followers of Jesus Christ, Acts as they did just that. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, Something amazing happens. Peter and the group of disciples, they go into Jerusalem. They proclaim the gospel. And Acts 2.41 tells us that on that first day when the gospel was proclaimed to the crowds, 3,000 people got saved. Boom, megachurch one day. Going from zero, basically, to 3,000. Can you imagine a well, can you imagine how awesome it would be to see a community of 3,000 formed in one day, but you can also imagine that there might be some headaches with that? Like all of a sudden having 3,000 people now looking at you and being like, okay, now what? Right? Like that's what they would have been dealing with. So 3,000 people get saved. Now here's the one thing that we often forget. The moment that those 3,000, most of whom we know from the text were Jews, the moment those 3,000 get saved, do you know what that meant for them? Their entire lives, they had engaged in the Jewish community. To be a Jew was not just to pursue the religion of the Jews, but it was to be involved in all that the Jewish culture and community had. And, and so the Jewish culture and community, they knew how to take care of themselves. They knew how to provide for themselves. Like, if you were a Jew in that day, you had the community. But now... If you say you're no longer going to walk in the religion of the Jewish faith and instead you're going to pursue Christ, do you know what you've just done? You've just cut yourself off from that community because that community's religion as well as their community life was so intricately tied together that, they, that if you said no longer am I going to be pursuing these things but I'm following Christ, you were cutting yourself off from all the security, all the comfort, everything else that you had known. So these 3,000 now are their own community separated from everything that they had known before. And that created an issue that arises in Acts chapter 6. Look at verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, so by the way, it wasn't just that 3,000 got saved, but it says over and over again, day by day more were being added. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Everybody really familiar with what's going on here? Let me explain, all right? Within the Jewish community, there were two types of Jews. There were the Hellenistic Jews and there were the Hebraic Jews. The Hellenistic Jews were those Jews who spoke predominantly Greek. 
And if we're really being honest, they predominantly spoke Greek because they were more connected to the Greek culture, the Roman culture of that day, than they were the Hebraic Jews' practices, okay? And, and so, so while they were both Jews, their lifestyles were very different. Well, both groups of individuals get saved. They're both Jews. But remember I was talking about that Jewish community and how it took care of itself and everything? It's like, those were the Hebraic Jews. And so now you have this mixed community that's come to faith. And what the text tells us was happening was, well, either at worst by prejudice or just simply by practice, the Hebraic Jews were taking care of themselves as they always had. They took care of their widows. If you were a widow at that time, that means you didn't have any extended family. That was a rough go of it. The only people that you could depend on to take care of you were the community. And so you have these widows who come to faith, and the Hebraic Jews, they're taking care of their own, if you will. And the Hellenistic Jews, they weren't being cared for because they weren't in part of that community previously. And, and so they're not getting taken care of, and this comes to the apostles, and they, and they see what's going on, and look at what happens in the next verse. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, this isn't the disciples being like, we're better than you. You know, you can't do what, you know. No, they're saying like, listen, we are called to preach and to proclaim to equip the saints. But there's a physical need here. Notice they don't poo-poo it. They don't say, you know what, they've got to deal with their own stuff. No, that's not what they're saying. They're like, this is a legitimate need. These people need to be taken care of. But if we use our resources to ultimately deal with this need, we're not going to be able to teach you. We're not going to be able to instruct you. So what are we going to do? There's a need here, and it should be addressed. And so what do they say? Look at the next verse. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. What duty? Taking care of the needs of these Hellenistic widows. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What the apostles realized was important was their ministry of preaching and teaching. But what they also realized was important was addressing the physical needs of people in the church who had no other means to take care of themselves. And so they said, how are we going to deal with this? Well, we're going to devote ourselves to preaching and teaching but we're going to appoint others who are going to perform the act of service. We're going to commission others who are going to take care of these physical needs. And so right there in the early church, what do we see the church doing? We see it being devoted to growing spiritually, but we also see it devoted to taking care of the physical needs of others. And immediately what we see is the apostles, they're going to continue on in teaching and preaching, but then they're going to say, you need those who will serve the body in ways so that we're freed up to do the ministry that God has called us to. And wouldn't you know it, as the rest of the Bible unfolds, as we see these instructions to the church, like we see here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the church understood that this was important and that this was necessary. So what do you have? You have now elders taking on the role of the apostles, being called to equip, to teach, to preach, to shepherd the church. And then you see this role of deacons forming, where ultimately they're taking care of the physical needs, those ministries within the church, so that the elders can do their role. And so if you want to know, like, what ultimately is a deacon, how do they function in the life of the church, I think this is a, a pretty clear way of doing it. The role of a deacon is engaging in ministry that allows the elders to fulfill their role of shepherding. 
So, so each church, it then seems, is, is free to determine what that ultimately looks like. What are the needs of our church body, of our local church, that would ultimately take away the elders and pastors from shepherding the flock? Let's identify qualified individuals who would serve in this way. One of the best, at least for me, this helps, illustrations of how this works, I think, is... Um, I think most people here have been on a commercial airline flight. Hopefully, you've been on a commercial airline flight. I'm talking about a flight of, you know, where you got 230 people or so on the flight. And, and every commercial airlines, uh, pretty much every single one, no matter even the size, they have two pilots, right? And what does a pilot do, everybody? What does a pilot do? They, they fly the plane. And so you have these two pilots, and they're, and they're the ones who are responsible for fi- flying the plane, but they're part of something larger. They're part, part of the flight what? The flight crew. And the flight crew isn't just simply limited to the airline pilots. It also invo- involves the what? The flight attendants. Now, did anybody see the news this week about what Mike Tyson did on an airline? Yeah, you know, Mike Tyson punched somebody on an airline. You know what I would not have wanted to have happen on that flight? Well, Mike Tyson, which, come on, like who is, anyway, I won't get into it. <clears throat> Who's annoying Mike Tyson on a flight, you know? Um, Not addicted to much wine. That's going to come up in just a minute. All right. Um, The thing I would not have wanted to happen is to all of a sudden to see both of the pilots come out of the cockpit. What's going on back there? Break it up, right? What's your first thought if that were to happen? Who's flying the plane? Like the one thing you won't see pilots do is leave the cockpit when things are happening back there because they have the flight crew who are the flight attendants who are to take care of those who are flying in the back of the plane, to take care of the needs of the passengers and to address the things that are happening back there, to enforce the rules for for the plane. Like you don't want the pilots leaving the controls to go back and deal with it. It's designed, the flight crew's designed to function in a specific way. In a similar way, in the wisdom of God, he comes and he says, listen, you have elders there to do this role. You want them preaching, teaching, shepherding the flock. But that doesn't mean there's not going to be needs over here. And so what we've done is we've established the role of deacons, these servant leaders who are ultimately there to come and to help take care of those physical needs so that the elders aren't distracted, pulled off of the thing that is essential. Both are needed. Both are necessary. You need people flying to plane. You need people taking care of the needs. But ultimately, this is God's design. This is how it's supposed to function. Now, some people ask, well, what does that look like here at Valley Center Community Church? The deacons here at Valley Center Community Church, they serve in a lot of different ways to help us. We have physical, financial needs of members of our church. The deacons of our church, one of the things that they do is they oversee the Mercy Fund. You can donate to the Mercy Fund here at the church, and those Financial resources are distributed at times to those who have needs. And so what do the deacons do? They take the opportunity to meet with people who come to us and say, I have this financial need. I'm struggling in this way. So we've helped people with rent, with car repairs, for physical needs that they have, medical bills, those kind of things. The deacons, they address that. They meet. They take care of those things. They relieve the elders from having to do that. They oversee special projects within the life of the church. Some people in our church have physical needs and they can't address things around their home. And so the deacons will organize work parties to ultimately help build things or to, or to work with them to hire people to help build and to fix things. They do visitation within the church. They do setup. They do takedown. They help us serve communion. There are all these roles that they do within the life of our church that are necessary, ultimately fulfilling these roles to help free the elders and pastors to do the work that God has called us to do. 
it's a beautiful thing when you see it all working together. Now, I do have to ask this question. Like, I just want to be abundantly clear. Like, because there are the elders and because there are the deacons in the church, does that mean that those are the only two people who serve and work within the life of the church? <laughs> right, let me just try that one more time. D- does that mean that all the service and work within the life of the church is only done by the elders and the deacons? No, no. In fact, John 13, Jesus washes the feet of his disciples and he says, I've given you a pattern that you two should follow that as I have served you, you also should serve one another. He even says in Mark 10:45, I came not to be served, but to what? Serve. And to offer my life as a ransom for many. Again, I said earlier, the body of Christ are, is made up of individuals who are called to serve. We don't just look at the deacons and say, glad the church has deacons, glad that they have elders, so I don't have to worry about discipling or anything like that. I don't have to worry about serving. God's going to take care of it all. No, we have elders, we have deacons, but the whole body. Like, this is what you want to see in a church. This is what we want to see at our church. We want to see these roles being fulfilled. We want to see everybody engaged in these things. When it's functioning this way, this is the way God has designed. But now here's what we got to talk about for a minute, and that is the fact that not just anybody should fulfill this role of, of deacon. Not anybody can just fulfill this role of deacon. We see this with elders. Paul specifically gives qualifications here in the text for those who you should look for to serve in this way. And he kind of gives four um, categorical qualifications. The first one is in verse 8. Look at it with me, verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Right off the bat, Paul says, in a very similar way to elders, they must have a dignified life. Those who would serve in this role that you would appoint must be dignified. They must have a dignified life. And then he explains what he means by that. I mean, broadly speaking, dignified means that they're respectable, but notice how he says they're not double-tongued. Do you know how important it would be for somebody who serves as a deacon to not be double-tongued? Because deacons are called to serve the body, to do a work. And and so when a deacon says, I'm going to do something, you want somebody that you know is going to do what they say. They're not double-tongued. They don't promise one thing and then not accomplish it. If you have somebody who's going to serve as a deacon, they need to be a faithful person. That's what he's saying here. There must be a dignified life. You can respect what they say. You should also see in their life that they have self-control, that they are mastered by nothing other than Jesus Christ. Not addicted to much wine and not greedy for dishonest gain. They're not mastered by alcohol and they're not mastered by money. They don't live for those two things. And I hope I don't have to say this, but every time I come to this kind of qualification, I I do say it anyway. This doesn't mean that they can be mastered by cocaine and marijuana instead, okay? Like, it's just not addicted, right? Like, there should be, substances should not control their life. It's not like, oh, great, okay, I I can't drink, but everything else is up for grabs. No, they're a self-controlled individual. You can see why this would be so important. Ultimately, if they are mastered by things other than Christ, they're somebody who then can't be trusted. And by the way, one of the things that stands out to me from both the qualifications for elders and deacons, and I want you to see this, is how much God emphasizes character and not giftedness when it comes to qualifications. Let me say that one more time. Do you notice that God always emphasizes a person's character and not giftedness? 
And I think that's so important because we are tempted and drawn to say, look how good that person is. They're such either a great communicator or administrator or look at their business savvy. And God's like, no, 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 no. What kind of character do they have? Do they reflect Jesus Christ in their life? Because we can easily put people in positions based upon giftedness. And when there is a lack of character, things crumble. And we can see this today. We look at how people are like with politicians. You know what? Their morals really don't matter. You know what? That guy's, you know, I know he beats his wife, but he's a great ball player. No. No. Like character is what matters. And then in verse 9, he comes and he continues. He says, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. What's he talking about here? He's talking about sound doctrine that they have sound doctrine, that these are people who know and understand the gospel and can apply it to their lives. And here's why I say that. When he talks about that they hold fast to the mystery of faith, he's not talking about something hidden that has not yet been revealed. The mystery of faith, Paul talks about elsewhere. In fact, look down in verse 16. He talks about this mystery. Verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He, Jesus Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. This is the mystery that's been made known. It was hidden for ages, he said to the church in Ephesus, but has now been revealed by the church that Jesus Christ came, lived, and died, and rose from the dead. How could God redeem the lost? How could he save the rebels, the answer we now know is in and through the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And it is huge that someone who would serve as a deacon would know this, embrace this. And here's the reason why. All the religions of the world outside of Christianity say God's up there or whatever the end goal is. And in order to obtain that thing, you must you must do or accomplish certain things in your lifetime, and then you get that salvation, you get that glory, you get whatever it is. You get God. It's always through the things that you and I do. That's what every other religion proclaims. Christianity comes and says, there's no good works that you or I can do to make God satisfied with you and accept you. In fact, all of our works are as filthy rags. God is perfect. You'll never obtain him through the things that you can do. And yet there was one work that was done, but a work not that you or I did, but that's the mystery here. It's the work that Jesus Christ did, dying the death you should have died, living the life you should have lived for you and me. This is the beautiful, glorious news of the gospel. This is what we celebrated at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what we believe as a church. It is through Jesus Christ that we are saved, through faith in him and him alone. I mean, that's what I pray that every single person that comes into this worship tent knows. You don't have to do the work. Christ has done it for you. But this is why it's so important that if you're going to serve as a deacon, you would know this. Because deacons are called to, to serve. And if you don't know the gospel, if you've not really internalized it and wholeheartedly put your faith and trust in Christ's work, what you can subtly believe, what we all subtly can begin to believe is that I serve and I do these good things so that God would accept me. And, and if you serve for those reasons so that God would love and accept you, that becomes a 
burden that becomes a weight, and eventually you will become bitter because you can't do enough. And so Paul says instead, deacons must be sound in doctrine. They must hold fast to the mystery of the faith. Why? So they can be free to serve. The joy of the gospel is that I serve and love, that you serve and love, not because of what it will ultimately get me, but because of what's already been done for me. Hallelujah for that. Amen? And that's why Paul says deacons need to have sound doctrine so they would never fall into the trap of doing their work for the, well, for the pleasing of people or ultimately because they believe that God will be satisfied with them. This is the glorious news of the gospel that frees us and, and saves us. And from telling us that they need to have sound doctrine, verse 10, he comes and he says, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Basically what he's coming here, there's, this doesn't need a lot of explanation. He's saying they should have proven service. They should show that they have a dignified life, that they've embraced the gospel, and that they are actively serving. Before you appoint them to be in the office of deacon, are they serving already? Don't put somebody in the office of deacon hoping that they will grow and become servants. No, they, they are people who have already shown themselves to be invested in the body of Christ, to, to love God's people, and to be engaged in acts of service. Make sure that they're proven first. And then if they are, then ultimately they would be considered qualified to serve in this way. This is just good wisdom from God. But then the final category that he lays out for us is in verse 12. Look at verse 12 for us. He says, Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Paul gave a similar instruction to elders. The only thing that he left off here is that they're called to manage their own household well, but he doesn't talk about them then managing the household of God, which makes complete sense because deacons aren't called to shepherd and are called to, to manage the church. Instead, he comes here, and what, he, what is he talking about? He's saying, listen, they should have a stable family. They should have a stable family. And that stability should be manifested in, in two ways. Number one, sexual purity in their marriage. Sexual purity in their marriage. At this time and place in ancient Ephesus, as well as in places like Corinth, in the culture at large, it was readily accepted for you, if you were a man, to have a mistress to have a woman outside of your wife. It could even be a potential servant with inside of the home. Paul says here, all right, let me be abundantly clear, church. Like, part of the reason that Paul has to say this is because of how widely accepted this was in the culture. A one-woman man is what it's saying here. There needs to be sexual purity with inside of their relationship. If there's not that kind of sexual purity, there is an instability in the home. And you can't say the next thing, which is that they manage their children in their own household well. They don't have their marriage in order, nor do they have their home in order. But I think one of the reasons why Paul says they need to manage their own household well is because if you are going to serve the church, it takes energy. And it takes a commitment. And every Christian mother or father's first priority is to the shepherding of their own home the discipleship of their own family. And if the discipleship of your own family does not leave you the time and the space to serve, then you should not forsake the discipleship of your own family for serving within the church. Are you following me? 
And so they must manage their own household well, meaning there should be a discipleship that's happening there that allows them the time and the space to ultimately be able to minister to the larger church family. Now, I hesitated almost making that point, while it's true. But you know why I almost hesitated making that point? Because the vast majority of people today, their problem isn't that they're so devoted to the discipleship of their children, but instead their lives are so filled with extracurricular activities that have nothing to do with the spiritual health and development of their children that they don't have the capacity for anything else outside or in the church. Are you tracking with me on that one? I almost want to say, can I get an amen to that? Because I know it's already true. But that's the reality. And so don't, don't mishear me. What I'm talking about is like when he says, like, don't give yourself to the church if your life is too full. What he's saying is like, you don't give yourself to, to serving in the church if you can't disciple your children well. Most often, though, that's not the problem. Most people are just simply maxed out in their extracurricular activities that they're not even discipling their families well. And so it gives them no opportunity to serve within the church. Paul says, get that in order. Get that in order. This is what God calls you to. Disciple your family. Make sure that that's being taken care of. And if you're doing that, then ultimately, there should come a time and a place in your life where you can serve in other ways. When that's happening, the body is being provided for. And so Paul says, listen, you're looking for people who have dignified lives, who have embraced sound doctrine, they've embraced the gospel, who have a proven track record of service, and ultimately you can look at their homes and say, you know what, it's a stable life. There's not a duplicity. There's a consistency of character. Who you see them at church is who they are in their own homes. Those are the kind of people that then can serve in this way. Just as with elders, just as with deacons. Now, I want to close this section by making one observation. While we have seen the qualifications for elders and we, while we just saw the qualification for deacons, did you know that every single one of the qualifications for elders and deacons you can find as a calling on every Christian's life? Just because you might not serve as a deacon, just because you might not serve as an elder, does not mean, whew, I don't have to worry about manifesting this kind of character in my life. Ultimately, deacons and elders are to be those who are putting on display to the rest of the church through their life and through their trust in Christ the kind of character that we all want to be striving for. It's why Paul would write, follow me as I follow Christ. And so just because you might not find yourself serving in one of those capacities doesn't mean that God's calling on you is to not lead a dignified life or to hold the sound doctrine or to pursue a stable family or to serve faithfully. This is what we want to evaluate. And here at Valley Center Community Church, we give our members the opportunity. When somebody is going to come and serve as a deacon, they meet with the elders first. We call upon them to consider that service. We meet with them. We evaluate them. And then ultimately, as you know, we present them to you, the church body. And we say, take a look. Take a look at their lives. Do you believe that their lives match up the qualifications that we see here in the scriptures? There's a time of examination. And, and so we don't do this in isolation, but we invite you to be a part of, of that process. And when somebody ultimately has shown that, yes, they are qualified in that way and called to serve, then they're installed and they serve in these ways. And I am so blessed with the individuals who are currently serving as deacons within the life of our church. But there's one thing, though, within this text that I'd be amiss if I didn't address. And this, is, I think, is really, really important, and that is the question of whether or not women are allowed to serve as deacons. 
because if you were with us a few weeks ago, then you know that we spent time looking at what God's word clearly says in 1 Timothy 2 in chapter 3, that the office of elder is an office that's reserved for men. In God's design, he has established that as the pattern within the church, just like a man is called to be the, the head of the home. And we, and we went through all of that and why that's, why that's the case. But what about when it comes to deacons? Can women serve in this capacity? They're called to be servants, and so it's not a position of teaching and authority like it would be for that of an elder or a pastor. So, so what about women? Well, here at Valley Center Community Church, if you spend any time on our website or you've been around, you know that we do appoint women to serve as deacons at Valley Center Community Church. And the reason that we do that is kind of fourfold. That the first reason for that is that we don't see any clear prohibition against women serving in the office of deacon. In comparison to the office of elder, God's word is very clear. It literally says that, that a woman can't serve in this capacity. But there's nothing mentioned of that ultimately in this text or any other text that would preclude a woman serving in this role as a deacon. Not only that, but when you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11, the argument can be easily made hopefully, I'm going to show you that in just a second, that, that women are actually in the mind of Paul those who would need to be qualified in order to serve. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11, we read these words. I want to go back to the text for a moment. In verse 11, it comes and it says this, Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, when you and I look at that text, it seems like Paul here is giving qualifications for the wives of deacons, right? That seems to be the plain reading of the text at least in the English Standard Version. But I want to show you something. If you have an NIV Bible or you have an NASB Bible, those English translations are a little bit different. In the NIV, it's translated this way. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect. Or the NASB says, women must likewise be dignified. Now, if these translations are correct then this isn't a qualification that Paul is giving for deacons' wives. Instead, this is a qualification that Paul is giving for women who would serve as deacons. Who's right? Who, who's wrong in the midst of this? Well, let me back up the train just for a minute. I hope most of you know that the New Testament was not written in English. It didn't exist back then. It was written in Koine Greek. And so you have to translate the Greek into English. And sometimes that's really easy to do. And sometimes, as the translators are working through a passage, they have to make certain interpretive decisions. Now, I like the ESV translation. It's what we use here. And 99.9% .9 of the time, I'm all in on, on that translation. This is one of those times where I think the translators just got it wrong. And the NIV and the NASB are the correct translations. And here's why. Literally in the Greek, it's three words that start verse 11. And it just simply says this, women likewise must be dignified. That's what it says in the Greek. That's the literal translation. Gunaikos is the Greek word that is translated here as woman or women. And, and that's the generic use. Sometimes in context, gunaikos is used to refer to wives. But I don't see that in the context here. Because if you notice, also in the ESV, did you notice how the very first word of the ESV says, their wives likewise must be? That word, T-H-E-I-R, that plural possessive there, 
you don't find that in the Greek. It was, it was put in by the translators to make the flow work in the way that they best understood it. But we here at Valley Center Community Church and the majority of scholars say, no, that's probably an overstretch, at least in the translation. Now, why do I share that with you? Because I want your faith to be shaken in the word of God. No, that's not why I share, share that with you. This is a rare instance where it's, it has nothing to do with salvation. It's, it, it's a way of application. And even then, it ultimately doesn't impact the final interpretation of the overall text. But I want to show you that verse 11 isn't actually precluding women to actually serve as deacons. It's actually, we believe, showing us an additional qualification for, for women. Just as it said, elders need this, deacons must be dignified, male deacons, women, look at what it says, must be dignified. If you're going to serve as a female deacon, they too need to be dignified. And so that's what's happening in the text. Now you would say to me, Dave, if, if women are to serve in deacons in the church, then we should see that elsewhere in the New Testament. And guess what we find? Romans chapter 16, verse 1. In Romans chapter 16, verse 1, Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and myself as well. Paul here talks about this very specific woman, Phoebe, and he identifies her as a servant. Guess what the word there is for servant? Diakonos of the church in Sancria. And Paul does something very intentional and very specific. That word diakonos can be translated with a feminine ending or a masculine ending. Phoebe is a feminine name. But when he writes the word diakonos, he uses the male ending. And do you know why he does that? Whenever the male ending is used in this type of situation, it's in reference to an office. If he was just referring to her as a generic servant of the church in Sancria, he would have used the feminine ending. But he doesn't do that here. Why? Because he's actually letting us know that she here is serving as a deacon of the church. And he goes on to explain that she actually is doing a very specific role for him, and she serves in ways that helps Paul fulfill his, his ministry. We see other examples of women that Paul even has later on in Romans chapter 16, who he refers to in this way as being stewards, as being helpers to him in the ministry. So why do we here at Valley Center Community Church, why do we ultimately commission women along with men to serve as deacons? We don't see any prohibition in the New Testament against it. If anything, we see an emphasis on the qualifications for women who would serve. We see examples of it here in Phoebe. And then ultimately in the early church, we see the early church, some of the first churches, appointing women to serve as deacons. There's this guy named Pliny. Most of you probably don't know him, but he was the governor of Bithynia. Not a good dude. He ultimately, at one point, didn't really like the church, and so he arrested two women there in Bithynia. And he arrested those women, tortured them, ultimately killed them. And as he was writing his record of what took place in his questioning of them, when he asked them who they were and what they did within the life of the church, they both referred to themselves as deaconesses within the church. Literally only 50, 60 years after Paul wrote this, we have an example of the church in Bithynia appointing women to serve as, as deacons. And they were so faithful that they were ultimately killed for their faith. So can women serve? In our mind, absolutely. That's why we commission women to do that here. We understand that there are some really good churches and people that disagree with us on this. Again, the role of elder and pastor, we reserve only that for men within the church because it is a shepherding and preaching role, and God's really clear on that. 
But here we see God calling us to ultimately allow those who have gifts of service to do that. And so we call women to serve as, as deacons in the church. And at the end of the day, I want to just close by looking at verse 13, where Paul says this, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This whole passage ends with this promise. What is the promise? That as the church functions in the way that it's supposed to, as people embrace the roles that God calls them to, it bolsters and strengthens not only their own faith, but the faith of the saints. And that's why for us at Valley Center Community Church, our desire is to walk faithfully in obedience to the word of God as to how the church functions, to encourage ourselves in that, to appoint elders, to appoint deacons, to encourage one another, to serve with the gifts that God has given us. Because when we function in that way, we're going according to God's design. And in God's design, there is blessing and there is goodness and there is a faithful testimony, not only to one another, but to our community. So may the Lord help us in that. So would you join me continually in praying for our church to live out its function in this world, to pray for our leaders and to pray for one another. And so by way of application, let me close by doing that right now. Lord, we want to continue to devote ourselves and to entrust ourselves to your care and to your leadership in all areas. Individually in our lives, we want to live in submission to Christ and living out the holiness, Lord, that you have purchased for us in and through him. We want to faithfully function as a church in the roles that you have designed as a way, Lord, of ultimately living in obedience to you, but also in blessing one another. Father, we want to be sons and daughters of Christ who walk in obedience. We don't want to live anymore as sons and daughters of Adam. And so, Lord, would you help us in that for the praise and glory of your name, for the good of your saints, and, Lord, for the glorious proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our community. And so we know that you help us in and through your spirit because of the work of Christ and what he promised. And so it's in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. And amen.